Well, listen, uh, start finding your way into Psalm 119. We're going to be uh, sitting in verses 68 through 71. So again, start finding your way to Psalm 119, longest chapter of the Bible. If you have just a genuine desire to memorize scripture, do not start with Psalm 119. While you're finding your way over there, I want to talk to you about something quite serious. I want to talk to you about a medical condition called the man cold. This man cold is no laughing matter. It affects 10 out of 10 males, ages 0 to 100. This man cold can take the roughest, tree cutting, house building, meat eating, plaid wearing contractor and reduce him to a shell of his former glory in under 24 hours. I've had a little bit of spare time lately. I don't know if you guys have noticed. And so I decided to go on the Twitter and see what women say about the man cold. One woman tweets, my husband and I both have a cold. The difference is I am cleaning the house and taking care of the kids while he is whining in bed. Another woman tweeted, husband has a cold. He says he is dying. If it doesn't kill him, I will. Another woman tweets, my husband has a cold and he's asked me to go get orange juice and ginger ale. I told him I'm going out and returning with your manhood. (laughs) My husband has the man cold. So my house for the next week is going to look like a scene from Grey's Anatomy. Men, let's face it, we do not suffer well with colds. Woman They get the cold as well, and they describe it only as a slight sniffle. Some people do not suffer well. Some people do. How about a more serious example? A woman by the name of Edith Egger, a survivor of Auschwitz, who currently is a counselor, discusses life and morale within a concentration camp. She had an interesting observation about the Jews who lived in the concentration camps with her. She noticed that inmates of the concentration camp who had suffered in life previous to the arrival did better in the camp. The inmates who had no prior exposure to suffering often gave up, wilted away towards their death. It is almost as though affliction and suffering created an outlook and a stamina and a perspective and a strength in a person that prepared them and their character for what was going to lie ahead. Suffering and affliction, these are not themes or a mere theory for the life of a Christian. The history of Christianity and our lives here today can both agree on one thing. We all will face trials and affliction in our lives. But the question now becomes, do we as a body, do we have a biblical understanding of suffering? Do we have a biblical worldview of suffering? Do we have a biblical understanding of the goodness of God and how it relates to and enters such suffering? The psalmist is going to show us Right now, Psalm 119, I'm starting in verse 68. Let's see what the word of God has to say. Before I was afflicted, I went astray. 
but now I keep your word. You are good and you do good. Teach me your statutes. The insolent smear me with lies, but with my whole heart I keep your precepts. Their heart is unfeeling like fat, but I delight in your law. It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. Harvest, will you pray with me? God, we are coming before you, Lord, discussing an area of theology so good, so beautiful, so profound, and it is how you are perfectly good and how you do perfectly good works even in the midst of hardship and affliction. God, I have no idea when I'm talking about these afflictions what sits before me and what people have gone through. So Lord, I ask for just a portion, a double portion of your spirit to lead my thoughts and my words right now. Would, would this room, would shame not be allowed in here? Will, would guilt be not allowed in this sanctuary? Would condemnation not be welcomed? But would your goodness and your good works be allowed in here? And Lord, I pray as we talk about these heavy things, would we, maybe for somebody here today, for the first time in maybe months or decades, experience goodness with whatever they are walking through? I can't do this, God. I've never been more positive. I have nothing And so, God, I'm asking you to do what only you could do so that you would get the glory and the honor and the praise, I pray. In Christ's name, amen. So this is our final week of the God Is series, Knowing God. And so today, our theory is this, or the title is this. God is good. God's goodness in affliction. And our first point that we're going to be diagnosing, we're going to be going through these different points. But point number one is God's goodness in affliction. How is it good? How does God's goodness even possibly enter my affliction? Look at verses 67 through 68. Right off of the bat, affliction gets our attention, doesn't it? Look, before I was afflicted, I went astray. But now I keep your word. You are good and you do good. Teach me your statutes. See, verse, verse 67 shows us a really interesting identity of the person. What is the person technically? He's astray. He's far off. He is not close. What was the thing that brought him close? And, and yes, yes, Jesus. Okay, great answer, right? You, you passed the test. What theme brought him close? I was once astray. What was the thing that brought him close? Affliction. Fascinating. God would ordain affliction, trial, and hardship as a way to wake us up and to bring us close. See, God, in his infinite wisdom, he's going to use affliction in the life of a person to tether them to him. We all read like Psalm 63, or sorry, Psalm 23, like the Lord is my shepherd. But you know what's really fascinating? Um, <clears throat> I grew up on felt boards, right? Growing up in Sunday school, I still need counseling for it. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to get through it. But on the felt boards, it was always the really cute stories that like just kind of, or the stories that were like, okay, well, we can't go there. We can't, like, there was never like a felt Bathsheba, right? And so 
we would, and so we, we, we go through these things. And so we always see like Jesus walking with a lamb or a shepherd walking with a lamb. And it's always cute. It's always fluffy. It's always great. You know what shepherds literally would do to sheep that would go astray? He would snap their legs. He would go to the sheep that would go astray and he would snap its legs and he would carry the sheep on him until the sheep finally healed. Enjoy trying to design a felt board thing for that. <laughs> Which actually, that's what we're doing in Harvest Kids today. So when you, your kids are going to have questions after the service, not my fault. Why? Because he created this thing where now the sheep is completely helpless. It cannot move, it cannot do, and it cannot wander. And now it is close to this shepherd. You know what's really cool about this? When it heals, it puts it down. There's such a close bond now between that sheep and that shepherd that the sheep that was always astray and wandering off, the shepherd's always tripping over the sheep because now that sheep is tethered to the shepherd. How did that sheep get close? Affliction. Hardship, trial, trauma, it brought him close to the shepherd. It wasn't a good yoga mat and some kale. It was hardship. And then you start to see that where there wasn't this beautiful relationship between a sheep and a shepherd, now there's this gorgeous, close intimacy. And the Lord often does the exact same thing in our lives to draw us close and tether him, us to him. You see, we see here that before I was afflicted, I was astray, but now, but now I keep your word. Affliction for the life of the Christian leads to a clinging to God. You ever had those seasons where like you, you love Jesus, but you didn't really need him? And you're like, you know, it's okay. I got the bumper sticker. You know, I've got that cool, trendy Greek tattoo right here. I'm good. It's all right. I got the kind of cruise control of my life. And then you ever had those seasons where, like, you held on to Christ because there's nothing else to hold on to? That's the intimacy that the Lord is desiring, and it's often fostered through hardship. And my question is this. Why would a sheep ever trust a shepherd that broke its leg? Why, if God has complete sovereignty over my life, why would I ever run to him for refuge? Look at what the psalmist says in verse 68. Read it with me. You are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. You see that? You are good and you do good. It's a dual statement about God. It starts by saying, you are good. He's going after the character of the Lord. He's saying, you, yourself, you are good. And then he's saying in his heart on the other side, he's going, and you do good. Do you know why you put yourself under a shepherd like that? It's because it's a shepherd that's safe in character. And it's a shepherd who is safe in action. It's a statement that it comes down to really, and it's this. Do you trust? In the face of the, in the face of affliction, not the absence, in the midst of it, do you trust? I have no doubt that as I talk about affliction, you have a very specific memory or experience in your mind. It might be in your past, or it could be in your present. What does your heart say? 
Does it say you are good and you do good? Because that's something you'll keep. But what about those seasons of your life where you're like, are you good? Do you really do good? You see, affliction is a catalyst for hunger and desire of God and his teachings. Look, at it's found in 68 again. You are good and you do good. Teach me your statutes. It's like he's craving more and more. He's desiring more of the Lord and more of his teachings. What was the catalyst for it again? Affliction. It was never comfort. It was affliction. Affliction is making him run to his God, and affliction is making him run to his word, going, teach me your statutes. You are good and you do good. I want more of this goodness that ultimately is you. You see, John Piper talks about how God is trying to go after five things in affliction. John Piper says that in affliction, it makes the believer become sober and more serious. John Piper says that the Lord will use affliction to remove worldly pillars so you have to rely on him. You know that career that just doesn't work anymore? That relationship that you just can't lean on? You know, your plans and your comfort and your way? And the Lord in his grace and afflictions allows those to tumble and you're left wobbling, not knowing like, what do I do? What do I hold on to? And the Lord is going, I am good and I do good. Hold on to me. Can I ask you a question? Do you believe the Lord is good when he removes the pillars that you love so much? That would be the ultimate test. When that thing that you've learned to lean on for however long you've led on is removed, does your heart still say you are good and you do good? John Piper goes on to say that the Lord uses <clears throat> affliction and it, to make the believer crave scripture instead of treating it marginally. Anybody done one of those, I like to call them Hail Mary devotions? You know, it's like, you know, the kids were a mess in the morning and this didn't happen and this has to, and then I'm on the way to work and I do like my Hail Mary devotion when the parking spot, oh, that was great, that was fantastic, that's great, I'm gonna go on that today, you know? But no, affliction makes us kind of cling to the word a little bit differently and read it and hold it and savor it that much more because it's giving us a prescription for something in our lives that we desperately need. There's a way in times of comfort you hold the Bible flippantly, and there's times in the times of affliction and trial where you cling to that word because it's all that you have. Piper continues, it, it partners us, affliction, it partners us in Christ's sufferings so we grow closer to him. He goes on to say that affliction destroys deceitful desires and puts us in a mind frame that is more sensitive to God and his movings. I like to put it this way. Affliction turns you from a civilian to a soldier quick. And it's no doubt November as, as we honor soldiers for the great things that they have done, for the sacrifices they have made. Imagine if they were only civilians. What would have happened? Civilians are useless in a time of war. They're unprepared and they're untrained. Soldiers, on the other hand, are trained 
equipped and they start to enter the battle and instead of just being a victim, they speak into the battle and they have a plan. And it, the Lord uses the same thing. It's like Paul. Paul's going, you know what? I, I'm, I'm aiming to please the one who has enlisted me. I can't get caught up, and this is Paul. I can't get caught up in a civ- civilian affairs. It entangles me. What happens to an entangled soldier? It doesn't go well. And so what he's trying to say is I have to have a specific mind frame because I have a task in front of me. There's a battle. There's a challenge. And you know what? I don't want to face this challenge as a civilian. I don't want to go in unarmed, exposed, and get shot. I want to be a soldier that embraces the battle that's ahead of them, leans on the Lord, and goes on the training and the knowledge that I've been provided by, by the Holy Spirit and his word. But so often when affliction hits, we can be in a civilian mindset. And then the trial runs us instead of us leaning on the Lord. You see, the onset of affliction, it creates a it has this way of detoxing a heart. You ever gotten bad news on a specific day? And it was just another day, and you were just going through the motions? And then that call happens? Doesn't it completely just detox your heart from what you thought the day was going to look like and whips you into a totally different mindset? You see, affliction, it takes a Christian, and it changes them from a civilian to a soldier. It's affliction is for the Christian, takes them from being astray to being close, from being asleep to being awake. God's goodness in affliction, it gets our attention to prepare us also for, and this is the next point, God's goodness in affliction, it gets me sober and sensitive. Verses 69 through 70, the insolent smear me with lies, but with my whole heart I keep your precepts. Their heart is unfeeling like fat, but I delight in in your law. Fascinating. You ready? Every affliction has uniquely crafted lies. Can I tell you something? The lies aren't random. When it says there that the insolent smear me with lies, the Hebrew language is actually trying to say sow or forge. They're sowing lies. They're forging lies. Think about that imagery for a second, okay? I've never forged a thing in my life. My hands don't have a single callus, and I love it. But how do you forge something? Seriously, how do you forge something? You heat it up, and you bang it, and you start to shape it bit by bit by bit by bit by bit. And here he's going, I'm, I'm getting these forged lies. And it's that thing over time where, and I notice it in counselees, I can spot the forged lies. They have a unique thing that they say about themselves. And it's always rooted in identity and worth. And it, and it comes out and it's very negative. I'm like, oh, right there, forged lie. Why? Because the enemy will use over time custom tailored lies and they're shaping it around you bit by bit by bit, hit by hit by hit, conversation that you have in your mind after conversation you have in your mind after conversation you have in your mind and they're tailoring it to you so it fits perfectly or it's like sewing if you prefer the sewing analogy you know you don't just take a giant like roll of fabric to cover up a specific spot in your jeans you make a custom piece of fabric for a custom area that's how smart the enemy is 
In the midst of affliction, they are fabricating and creating custom lies that are perfect for you to almost accept because they're covered in a half-truth. Right? Like the enemy is creative. Let's, we're going to give him that. He doesn't use the same lie on you as me. Right? Because like one thing I notice a lot of times, you know, um, especially um, moms with young kids, really struggle with like, ah, my kids don't look Instagram worthy this morning. Right? Now Satan came up to Matt and we're like, listen, Matt, you're a terrible mother and your kids don't look Instagram worthy. I'm going to be like, go home, Satan. Like, come up with something better. That doesn't bother me. Forget that. Yet, I bet you there's a woman in here that would sink them. You want to hear one of mine? Hey, Matt, that counselee would do better and would be closer to God if you were a better counselor. Okay, fake nails coming off, we're fighting. Here we go, Satan, right? Like, and so you start to see that, and you're, and you're sitting here listening to mine, and you're like, well, that wouldn't work on me one bit. And guess what? Yours won't work on me one little bit. But why? Because we're seeing these custom little fabricated lies that are meant to destroy you in the affliction. Man, if anybody was even looking at you right now, you're done. You hypocrite. You're never going to get out of this. You are not wanted, you are not loved, and you're not even worthy of it. You are too far gone. You are a mistake. Probably hitting a couple nerves right now. And those are, the, those are what I call the horizontal lies, which is against you. And guess what? This affliction, it has vertical lies to it as well. God is not in this. He doesn't care. He's exiled you. And this is all it will ever be. He is wrathful, distant, and cruel. See, the vertical ones, they're the most dangerous know why they attack the truth of god's goodness and his good work so you'll never try to run to him and then what are you left with you we have to kill these lies not entertain them not stuff them down and not nourish them how does one go about killing these lies First of all, I love this because we're not Baptists, so we can be vulnerable. Here we go. Who here has one of those? Raise your hand. Come on. No, I know this church. We're not that sanctified. Put your hand up. <laughs> Bingo. Okay, so you start to see. I'm like, oh, and maybe here, and you're like too scared to put your hand up. And you're like, oh, thank heavens, I'm not the only one. Watch how we begin to address these lies and affliction. It's found in verse 69b. <clears throat> but with my whole heart, I keep your precepts. It's with his whole heart. He takes his, because heart, again, in this culture, too cute of a word. He takes his emotions. He gathers his thoughts. He takes his desires. He takes his hopes. He takes his aspirations. And he's presenting it to the teachings and to the character of the Lord. Because if you don't hold on to God and you don't hold on to his word, you're going to hold on to something. Spoiler alert, that will fail you. 
You know what else you can run to? You can run to you, your wisdom, your strength, your ability, your health, your anger, your resentment, your despair, the other person. You could even learn to hold on to the affliction itself and like just be thrown around like a rag doll and ask for mercy. You know what Satan's greatest strategy in this day is? And if you have young kids, you see it in every Disney Pixar movie. You ready? The greatest tactic of the enemy is for you to hold on to you because the only thing you need is you. Can I tell you something? The enemy doesn't fear your A game. He welcomes it. You want to bring your own A game to the battle. I think the biggest cheerleader you'll have is Satan. Going, go, Matt, go, Matt, go, Matt. You got this. Do it. He's going to be my biggest booster, my biggest fundraiser for the event. And he's going to go, Matt, you take care of this. Why? The enemy doesn't fear me at all. You know what the only thing the enemy fears when it comes to me is what I run to. And if I run to me, I am a chihuahua at Michael Vick's house. It doesn't end well. You can tell who watches football. (laughs) But guess what? If I run to the goodness of my God and my hurt, and I run to his good works, there I will be safe. That's why those vertical lies, if you have them, are so dangerous. They're creating barriers that stop you from turning to the goodness of the Lord, and then it's just you, and then it's game over. But you start to see this affliction, this affliction. You see his goodness. We see how he does good work. Why? He's going, I am good. I do good. Come to me. I do good. I am good. Come to me and watch what will happen. We also start to see that, like, you, you want to see what the execution block for a Christian is? The execution block for a Christian is paved with the bricks of self-sufficiency and self-empowerment. Think about that. The execution block for the Christian is paved with the bricks of self-sufficiency and self-empowerment. So how do I avoid this execution block? How do I kill these lives greater and greater? Look at it this way. You're going to start to see, as we keep diving into the text, we're going to see two different types of hearts. In verse 70, their heart is unfeeling like fat, but I delight in your law. Watch these two hearts collide. There's a man whose heart is unfeeling like fat and another heart that delights and also feels. So it was really interesting. I was reading on Spurgeon. Spurgeon actually wrote his doctor about this passage. You want to see what Spurgeon, this is the first time Spurgeon's doctor's ever been quoted, but check this out. It's up on the board. This was Spurgeon's, um, nope, nope, next one, yes. This is what Spurgeon's doctor had said about these two types of hearts. You want one and you really don't want the other. Is not the psalmist contrasting those who lead an animal, self-indulgent, vicious life by which the body and the mind are incapacitated for their proper uses and those who can run in the way of God's commandments, delight to do his will and meditate on his precepts? 
sloth, fatness, and stupidity versus activity, firm muscles, and mental vigor. Body versus mind. Man becomes as a beast versus a man retaining the image of God. Did you see that? There's a heart that has a numb sensation to the Lord and wants nothing to do with God. And now there's this other type of heart. And guess what? It's kind of biblically classified as a needy heart. And can I tell you something? That's a good heart to have. And that's the heart of a daughter. And that's the heart of a son that he desires to have. The heart that God has designed for his children isn't numb and unfeeling, but is one of sensation and delight. It's a delight in God and an affliction. They're not exclusive. We, like, affliction, delighting in the Lord, they are actually kind of designed by God. They wed. North American culture, that makes no sense. Right? Because... The moment we have a hard time in our marriage, what's their biggest kind of option, really? But here the Lord is saying that in the heart of my children, in affliction, and the beauty of what I'm doing, the goodness of what I'm doing in affliction, I'm going to marry my goodness and affliction in your life, and we're going to bring them together and watch what we'll do when you remain under me. The heart who keeps his word, the heart who delights in his word, this is a Christian who's going to persevere and say, you are good and you do good. But see, here's the beauty of it. How does the psalmist say you are good? How does the, how does the psalmist say you do good? Because if I'm honest, in the last couple of months of my life, I, there have been great days and there have been low days. There's been happy days. There's been sad days. There has been numb days. My life has not been a Disney Pixar movie lately. But you know how a heart can say that you are good and you do good? It's because there's no trial. There's no consequence. There isn't a diagnosis. There is nothing in your past. There is nothing current. And there's nothing to come that threatens the nature and the character of the goodness of God. Our delight in the Lord, it also, let's be raw, it's not just a mere emotion. It's also a choice. Sometimes, especially in our generation, like if we don't feel, then it's not real. If you're enslaved into your emotions, you're now totally at the mercy of whatever chemicals your brain dumps into whatever area. There's times when it feels crushing. There's times when it's perplexing. There's times when it's hard. And what you have to do is you have to not just go on the sensation of what you're going through. You have to will your heart back under the umbrellas of the goodness. And you are good. And you have to have the schizophrenic conversation with yourself that you're so glad like isn't recorded. Because then you'll be like, that bastard Matt, he needs counseling. He shouldn't do counseling. Right? And you're taking it and it's that choice of heart come back under. Yeah, but, and no, come back under. And you know what the heart says right after that? No, but. Yes, come under. He is not good. Yes, he is. He does not do good. Look at, no, he does good. And it's this discipline of taking your heart, and ultimately the Greek word is shut up, telling it to shut up and come right back under what he is doing. 
Our delight in God is not a mere emotion. It's also a choice. Of course, we don't understand at times what's going on. Of course, we do not get it right now. Some of us won't ever get it in this life. But I encourage you, stop and remind yourself. Christ has lordship over you. And Christ has lordship over your affliction. But you're like, Matt, Matt, look, here's me. Here's my affliction. I'm like, okay. And then I'm like, I, I grab their hand because I only have two hands. And I'm like, you put your hand on top of mine. Great. Here's you. Here's your affliction. Here's your God who won. And it's okay that there's times where you're like, man, this, this affliction feels like a wave. feels like I'm drowning. And by the time I hit the surface, oh, man, there's another wave. I'm telling you that your trial is not your God, but both you and your trial have a God, and it's the same God. And your God is more for you than he is the trial, which is why you will not drown. God is good, and God does good. Take a moment now and just remind the heart that. You know, Spurgeon beautifully like states, goodness in God is not a quality. It's his essence. Goodness in man can be a quality, but goodness in God is not a quality. It's his essence. There's a fundamental difference between the two. And you ever thought about it like this? Your trial, your affliction, that thing that you've gone through, the enemy, your lies that you face, your trial. You ready for this? This is going to sound refreshing. It's wearing a collar. And that collar has attached to it a short leash. Attached to that leash, leash is a scarred hand of a Savior who loves you, who is for you, and is even using the yapping chihuahua on the leash to grow you in him. The goodness of our God is prevalent. He's so sovereign and he's so secure in the affliction. Are you ready? God will even use the enemy to grow you in Christ. He did it with Paul. He gave Paul that thorn. And it was a messenger of Satan. And what did it do to Paul? Sobered him up and kept him close. Your trial is a tool in the hand of your God, and he is doing something. It's not random, and it is not meaningless. So how do we do this? How do we keep his word? How do we hold on to the statue? Matt, I have those lies. Matt, I have that affliction. Matt, I'm here today, and I'm just, I've just been like good for every Sunday for like six years, but I'm not really doing too good. I'm, I'm struggling. I'm limping. We see God's goodness and affliction. It gets my attention. God's goodness and affliction, it gets me sober and sensitive, wakes me up, brings me to him. And finally, God's goodness and affliction, I must remain under this is a lost art, if I can be honest, in a lot of us Christians. Look at verse 71. <clears throat> it is, what's that next word in verse 71? It is good for me that I was afflicted. What? 
Wow, okay. I'm not going to lie. Not a lot of devotional books going over this one, right? Like everyone's like, I know the plans that I have for you. They're wonderful and fluffy. That's like the devotional that we love, right? But guess what? Here, the psalmist is saying, it's good for me that I'm afflicted. And he's not using the word good in the Baptist sense where it's like, how are you? Good. How are you? Good. I'm so wonderful. We can get to this building all together and talk about our goodness. No, that's not what he's getting at. He's sitting here saying, it's good for me that I was afflicted. I would not change it. I would not exchange it. I'm not coming out from underneath it. He is good and he does good and it is true in my affliction. And I'm here to say that I, it, it was good for me that I was afflicted. Why? What's that next line? That I might learn your statutes. This is a man who has exchanged worldly comforts and worldly plans and worldly means and goes, yours are better, God. And in this moment, what I want is this. It was good for me that I was afflicted. It was hard. There was a lot of snot. There was a lot of tears. There was a lot of sleepless nights. There was a lot of limping. There was a lot of rehab. There was a lot of issues. It was uphill. It was difficult. It was too difficult for me, but it wasn't difficult for you. And now there's a peculiar glory that has been given to God in and through me, through this affliction, it was good that I was afflicted. I want you to start thinking of your hardship, your trial. Think of it as a beautiful class. Welcome to the seminary of suffering. Learning is often applied and singed on our heart through affliction. And God is going to just juxtapose the suffering of this world with his goodness in Job's life to both validate God used affliction in Job to, to Job, in Job's life to both validate Job's love and to show God's goodness in the midst of turmoil. God used affliction in Paul to produce a greater dependence in Paul for God to greater use Paul for his glory. God used affliction and martyrdom of the early Christians to spread the gospel like wildflower. And God used affliction and trial in Christ's life as the means of redemption and restoration between us and God the Father. Thank you for affliction. Look at the power and the goodness of who our God is and what our God does as a result of it. And you ready? It's the same in us. It's easy for us just to esteem like random saints and just be like, oh, yeah, that's Paul. Of course, Paul's legit. You know what I mean? And you can be like, oh, you know, Job. But the thing is this, you ready? You have something incredibly in common with both of them. We're all sinners that need a God. And the works and the things that he has done in them, he desires to do in you. But my question is this. Is your heart under the anthem, you are good and you do good? It doesn't just happen. We can't fast track it. We can't buy out of it. But you ready? We can remain under it. James 1 through 2 says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you face trials of many kinds, because you know the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work that you may be mature and complete, lacking in nothing. Do you know that when it talks about steadfastness right there, when it talks about patience, it's actually the translated it means remain under. Remain under. Let me reread the verse in that context. Count it joy my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, because the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Remain under 
so that it can have its full effect, that you may be mature and complete, lacking in nothing. God is going for a whole effect in your life, not a partial. And he's saying, remain under. Why? Because I'm doing something. It is good. Remain under it, and I'm bringing it to full completion. Isn't that good? Is that God not good? Does he not do a good work? Using hardship and trial to bring about growth and beauty in our lives. Your affliction doesn't threaten your God. And it does not threaten his love for you and his work for you in his life. How do I know that's true? I'm reminded of Paul yet again. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for those who are called according to his purpose. How many things are all things? Take a guess. All for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed into the image of his son, in order that he might be the first fruit among many brothers. Um, and those whom he predestined, he also called, and those he called, he justified, and those he justified, he glorified. What Paul pretty much says is, he's got you. He had you at this stage, 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 and at each stage, he is good, and he is doing good. But Paul just can't stop there. Then he goes this. What then shall I say to these things? If God is for us, who could be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who should bring a charge against God's elect? It's God himself who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ is the one who has died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us? That's not just a generic us, it includes you. Who shall separate us from this love of Christ? Shall trial, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword, affliction? As it is written, for the sake we are being killed all the day long, regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who first loved us. For I am sure that neither life, nor death, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of Jesus Christ. And that is how we can say, in the midst of hardship, you are good, and you do good. As the worship team comes back up, Sometimes our heart needs to kind of just be nudged back under. Because if your heart's like mine, it just kind of wants to skirt. It kind of just wants to get out underneath and go and do its own thing. And so we're going to do just a little bit of an exercise. So stand up with me really quick. We're about to do something that we're really honestly going to do for all of eternity. So why not kind of grow in the experience of it here and now? There's two lines. You are good and you do good. It's fitting for us to worship God. It's fitting for us to proclaim his goodness to him. And so taking this first line, you are good, I want you to, for like 30 seconds, and guess what? No one's really going to make out what you said because it's all going to be like all mumbled. And it, I want you to just to list off the different attributes of God of why he is good. Kind of like, God, you are good because you, you're in complete control. And just start saying as many as you want until we move to the next exercise. But saints, let us worship out loud with him together.
to the next part. <clears throat> you good do because. But just list off the various things that you have seen the Lord do in your life that has been good. So it's like, Lord, you are good because you have spared my life. Lord, you are good because you have surrounded me with saints who love me and who care for me. And just start praising him out loud. Go for it. Father God, I join in these words of these saints that are in front of me. You are good and you do good. And so, Lord, I pray that wherever we're at, wherever we're walking through, whatever we need, I pray, Holy Spirit, would you meet us here. God, remind us of your goodness. Show us the goodness of who you are and the greatness of what you do. And Father God, for for those who are tired and weary and have nothing left, I pray, Holy Spirit, would you, would you meet them and give them the strength to remain under, the courage to remain under, even the courage to be weak and come to you, Lord. And let this be the day that turns the tide of the affliction, of the hardship, and of the trial, not because of how great we are, but because of who you are. In Christ's name. Amen.